The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. Welcome back. This is Chrissy Coughlin, and you are listening to Nature of Business. And thank you for sticking around on this uh, lovely but very hot Wednesday. Today we have on the show, as I mentioned, Arlen Wasserman. Arlen is a founding partner at Consultancy Changing Tastes, which he started in 2003. He's also a fellow at the Aspen Institute and has a master's degree in natural resource sciences and public health, and I believe at University of Michigan, my alma mater. And he is also the former VP of Sodexo, the world's leading institutional food service provider, uh, where he led its efforts to develop and implement the first sustainability strategy encompassing both environment and public health concerns. Welcome, Arlen. Hey, Chrissy. It's wonderful to be with you. It's great to be with you, too. How are you enduring the 98 degrees down in Washington, D.C. area? Um, I'm doing fine. What you didn't say in my background is that I live... (laughs) The uh, Negev Desert in Israel when I was 15 and 16, and I have not been hot since. So <laughs> early training it. in climate change adaptation. <laughs> okay, that's the best. Um, I'm, I'm doing it the, the modern way, major air conditioning here. So not totally environmentally sound, but quite necessary today. <laughs> Um, well, it's really, really nice to have you on the show. We've had a, a really wonderful time sort of prepping for the interview. Why don't you give uh, our listeners a little bit of a background about you and your past and where you are now in your uh, career trajectory? Sure. Um, well, I grew up in, in, in the food industry in Philadelphia when uh, terms like health, nutrition, sustainability, corporate responsibility were just uh, not part of the industry. And I spent about um, just shy of 20 years working in environmental and conservation issues in the public sector and also in the nonprofit sector. In 2002, I made a a big uh, turn back into the food industry when I was awarded a Food and Society Policy Fellowship by the Kellogg Foundation and got to um, start to look at the intersection of environment, public health, culture, and the food industry. And that led me to start changing tastes, working with um, growth stage food companies um, in the natural and organic sector when that was a a sector mostly dominated by fast-growing independent companies. And then in 2007, I was recruited in by Sodexo to uh, create a sustainability program for that company, which is the world's leading contracted or institutional food service provider and also the largest uh, provider of food and nutrition service to school children in the U.S. Hmm. That was an interesting journey that lasted until the start of this year and in many ways was a very traditional sustainability and corporate responsibility journey for a large company. When I came in, volunteerism, a little bit of corporate philanthropy defined the company's sustainability engagement strategy. I got to help senior executives understand that the social, environmental, and health impacts of how the business operates were what really matters, set goals, and help to um, mobilize a very large workforce of uh, 400,000 people to make more sustainable choices every day. I left that uh, role at the start of this year, year to go back to changing tastes, and now I also chair the Sustainable Business Leadership Council for the Culinary Institute of America. You're a busy man. Yep. And having a <laughs> wonderful time. <laughs> That's great. So 
tell us about I'm 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 taking notes here about Sodexo and I'm I'm a little surprised that when you when you came in at t- in 2007 that you really were were creating uh, a sustainability program and that it was relatively limited to volunteerism and corporate philanthropy. How did it how was it received at Sodexo when you came in and really tried to shake things up? Well, if you think about uh, any very large and decentralized company, um, it wasn't as if nothing was happening. At a company that serves nearly 40,000 different clients, colleges, school districts, hospitals, um, there were lots of um, what, what a lot of people call random acts of greenness, little programs <laughs> to serve you know, University of California Davis or some small corporate dining program. So I think one of the things that happened in a very large company was that my arrival um, created some permission for people who had been doing things in the corners Mm. to um, gain recognition for what they were doing. And then when I came in and looked at this very large uh, company with all sorts of, I won't call them innovations, I'll call them improvisations going on, um, it was really Mm -hmm. an ecosystem where there was lots of experiments, many failed ones, lots of evolution, some dead ends going on. So one of the, the, the programs that I put in place was to use the community practice model to help um, convene and, and, and cull all that energy that was, that was going on in the corners and start to uh, sift through all of these um, adaptations um, to figure out which would work across the company. That worked really, really well. Um, mm-hmm. I think in, in, in older decentralized companies where, um, you know, there's a strategy, but it's hard to push through through thousands and thousands of sites and through hundreds of thousands uh, of semi-skilled employees. Um, there's a command and control approach common in a lot of, uh, of, of older companies. Sodex is nearly 50 years old. And so mm-hmm. I think there was a mismatch between the energy going on in the corners and, and, and a command and control that wasn't unique to sustainability. But I think that, that my came coming in again kind of empowered, gave people permission to talk about and be proud of what they were doing in small ways, and then also helped us build up a library of good practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what is the relationship between the food industry and sustainability? You know, I, I put my time here after 20 years in the environmental movement and, and working in, in, in the industry, environmental industry, because I think that you know, simply put, the food and agriculture sector isn't just the place where people connect with the planet on a personal level um, and often try and express their values. It actually is the place in the economy where we're making the most important choices about the future of the planet and the future of our own health. And mm-hmm. let me just share a couple of statistics, which I'm sure most of, most of your listeners already know, but... Um, Growing our food, farming and ranching take up about 40% of all arable land in the world, land that isn't a wetland or a steep slope. Um, It uses, depending on the statistics, somewhere between 30 and 70% of all the world's fresh water. We know that's recirculated, um, so that's why there's a big variation there. It's responsible Mm -hmm. for um, about a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions. Beef production alone is about 18% of all human greenhouse gas emissions. And if you think about economic activity, one food crop alone, coffee, is the second most valuable legally traded commodity in the world after oil. So in defining our economy and how our economy relates to the planet, 
uh, foods where it's at, and I won't go into because everyone's even more aware of how that also determines our own health, health care costs, and for children, you know, uh, good nutrition is critical to, to, to their future as well. So it's the place to be. It, it, there is certainly a lot going on. Now, let's switch to the consumer then. Uh, yeah. what, what, are the, what are the trends that we're seeing? Are they demanding that, that food be more nutritional? Are they demanding that, that farming practices be more sound? I mean, we see it in our world, but let, let's talk about you know, the entire globe. What is, well, what is the trend? Um, I think you need to, to, to cut the world in half, and I, and I hate to do it that way, but I'm going to talk first about the uh, less industrialized world quickly, and then I think I want to spend more time on, on the U.S. and Europe and parts of um, developed Latin America. You know, we know that globally we have a huge issue of malnutrition. Um, that includes hunger and also malnutrition that shows up as obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And one of the areas where this is this concern is growing in both ways very rapidly is Asia, especially China. In the developing world, producing enough calories is a critical issue. And it's a critical issue because um, without good industry and technical practices, about half the food grown is wasted because it's not harvested right or it's not stored right. Um, the other reason is as the world grows more affluent, people want a more Western diet, more animal protein. Talk about why it's harder to produce animals uh, than, pl than plants on the planet, maybe a little bit later. But they basically need to produce more food because they're not only feeding people with, say, corn or soybeans, they're also trying to feed animals with corn or soybeans. So that's the issue in the developed world. And so I think there is on some of the basics, okay, we have good seeds, but what do we do after the farming practice is over? We have to become more efficient because we don't have a lot more viable land to use. Mm -hmm. And there's also a challenge of increasing production dramatically because of a change in diet that matches a change in household affluence. I think the more interesting trend for me is what's going on in, in the industrialized world, especially in, in, in North America, Europe, parts of Latin America, and Asia that are fully industrialized. And we're seeing an incredible increase in the interest uh, among co consumers around where their food came from, how it was grown, who grew it, what's in it. Hmm. Um, you just need to look at, you know, the number of blogs, the number of apps, the New York Times bestseller list to see how much people want to consume knowledge about how their food was produced and delivered to them. The innovation going on there, I think, is the same thing that's bringing us, you know, the, the miracle of this radio show, and that's um, social media or networked world, and that more of that information is being generated by consumers or interest groups and not mediated by companies, communications departments, or by PR professionals. Mm -hmm. All very interesting. That all said, the mega trend that's gone on for maybe 15 years and made me leave the consumer packaged goods world for food service in the restaurant industry is that we're actually making far fewer choices about what we eat than ever before. The number of meals we eat in the U.S. that are prepared by someone who's not a member of our household has now reached uh, the 50% mark. It means that more than half the meals we eat are pre uh, prepared by a company, a restaurant, the hot bar uh, or, 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 or 
or, or deli at a, at a grocery store, which looks a whole lot like a buffet line these days. Um, right. Where all the dishes are composed, and so we're actually trusting culinary professionals and companies to make the selection of the ingredients. And so there's a real yeah. interesting piece going on here where our interest is increasing, our access to knowledge and independent knowledge and opinion is increasing, and we're hiring companies to make more of the most important decisions that there are. That is really interesting because we're not just talking about, you know, your, your, your TV dinner at night or your Stouffer's or whatever. We're talking about going to lunch and getting this, the pre-made salad. We're talking about, you know, I, I get it. I mean, 50% is an astounding number. Yeah. And it, 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 was, it was headed in that direction. It took a little step back in 2007, eight with the downturn when a few people, you know, started uh, staying at home a little bit more, brown bagging a little bit more. But then it's taken right back off as, you know, Households send both adults to work if, the, if there's two adults in the household. Neither has time to cook. Mm-hmm. And it shows up in big ways like the pre-made salad at work. It shows up in, 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 in unexpected ways like, you know, you go to a supermarket and you're a little pressed for time, so you buy prepared foods and a few ingredients. Um, right. Or it shows up in interesting ways like you might go into a, a high-end retailer, you know, full of natural and organic free-range meats and chickens. But then you buy the rotisserie chicken because you don't have time to, to roast it. So you, you might chop your lettuce and your tomatoes and then throw that chicken on top. Less sure right. about pedigree and all the ingredients that went into making it taste yummy. That's Probably true. Probably make it taste a little salty. That's funny. I, I do that quite often. So what are we seeing? We, we're, what are we seeing in terms of the different generations? Generation Y, X, millennials. I mean, there's certainly consumer trends, but are they different among generations? Um, they're different. They're different enough in ways that make or break the success of companies. Okay. And I think it's really, uh, you know, I, I, I make a, a fair amount of my living helping executives who are even baby boomers. That's an old generation, I guess, these days. See <sighs> through their own biases. Um, the baby boomer industry, in many ways, made the success of the natural and organic industry, and that industry uh, shaped the attitudes of the baby boomers. So if you're in your mid-40s or older, and there's lots of variation for whether you're divorced or married, whether your kids are in the house or not and all that, but basically you have an attitude that says, I have a diet, and then as I care to or have an ability to, I will pay a premium, maybe 10 or 15% even, for a healthy, natural, and organic or an organic ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll splurge because something looks better and healthier for me. I'll, I'll buy um, only organic cucumbers and celery because I know that they have a, uh, more likely have pesticides residue, but I'll buy commercial onions because I saw somewhere that they were okay. Right. Then you have right. a fork in the road, and I, I, I don't want to go too deep into the psychology, but then um, the, the, the Gen uh, Xers, started to think a little more globally and say, I really care about not just, you know, a part of my basket, but the whole market basket. And you saw the rise of things like the fair trade movement concern around sustainable seafood. Um, Then 9-11 hit in 2001. Everyone started, wanted to stay closer to home and keep things safe. And while there's many, many reasons for it, that really accelerated the buy local movement. There has even been a period in time when people were saying, I want to buy local, I want to buy local, I want to buy local to support, you know, something close to home, something that felt safe, 
Yet the sales of globally traded, fair trade certified, marine stewardship certified products continue to go up. To, and in deeper probing, people thought that that was local in some way because it was authentic. Because it mm. came when they knew not the big scary world and they were searching for the right label for it. Go forward mm. another decade, a little, you know, past few years, and uh, Gen Y and millennials are doing something different. Um, they are uh, less brand loyal, um, and they are uh, really interested not in the product, but more in the practice of the company or the whole brand. It's not enough to say you can buy, you know, a genetically modified uh, tortilla chip from us, or you can buy an organic tortilla chip for us, or you can buy a healthy tortilla chip from us. Uh, if you put that product assortment in front of a baby boomer, some of them are going to buy the more expensive products. You put that uh, same product offer in front of uh, a, a millennial or a Gen Yer, and they're going to walk away from your whole product selection and go find a brand that's more authentic. Mm-hmm. They're buying based on your corporate practices, where older audiences, especially boomers, are buying on uh, the notion of sustainability as a luxury. Huh. Okay. Or an affordable luxury or a personal fashion or value statement. Okay. Now, uh, for those who are just tuning in, we are speaking with Arlen Wasserman, and he, among many other things, is the former VP of uh, Sustainability at Sodexo, and he now runs a consultancy, uh, actually since 2003, called Changing Tastes. I have a, uh, I have a question from a, a listener who tweeted me um, about the prepared food, so we'll just rewind for a little bit here. Um, he asks, why are others preparing our food? I think we sort of discussed a little bit, but is there a behavior that is driving this? Um, is it that we're too lazy or is it convenience? What, what, what's going on with that trend? I think there's five things uh, driving that trend. One is we're pressed for time and it takes time to cook and it takes time to cook well. The second is, you know, going back to the early boomers, now the parents of many people who are raising their own families, um, the notion of prepared foods as a uh, technology that liberated women so that they didn't have to stay at home is mm-hmm. ingrained into our society. We don't think about it a lot, but it means that in a very traditional household, mom can now work or do other things. And so I think that, you know, we grew up eating more prepared foods. The yeah. other thing is um, because of that, many of us grew up not knowing how to cook as well as our parents and grandparents. Increasingly, um, we are nervous about cooking in general, especially in the U.S. We're afraid of serving food that is not uh, sufficiently delicious, um, especially in, in a media where, you know, the chef is a celebrity and you can watch the Food Network, you know, or the Food Channel, or even, you know, I think the Travel Channel now, and I, Anthony Bourdain is now going to go on CNN. It's hard not to see a great chef cooking. And, you know, there's lots of parallels. One of them, you know, probably timely right now is the NBA. You go watch the NBA, you really don't learn a lot about how to play basketball better. And if your family's watching it, you don't want to go have them watch you shoot hoops afterwards. <laughs> um, so I think we're really nervous. Yeah. And I think the last thing is, a mix of uh, social um, factors that cause us to eat together less often, so we don't have as many opportunities to cook, and also um, to have access to a, a world of global flavors, from sushi to uh, sriracha to burritos, 
you know, most U.S. small cities have those flavors. And that is a whole host of cooking techniques that are beyond what we learn at home or in home economics. Mm -hmm. So I think we have a talent gap. We have a, a confidence gap. We have a fewer opportunities. And, 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 and we're also busier, and we can pay for the convenience. Hmm. Wow. Um, I'm not saying all of those things are good. I'm saying um, it's just the way that it is. And so at this moment in time, and I think for quite a while forward, the most important decisions about culture, health, and our relationship to the planet are being made by paid professionals, culinary professionals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to business then. What are they, what are they actually giving us? What, what are we seeing that they're giving us? They're, they, we know that the, that the food and ag industry is, being, is paying more, more attention to sustainability and planning for it. And we can talk about the planning aspect. But are they giving us good food? Um, I think you have to shop and choose wisely. You know, I, I, I like to think that I, I um, am a... Uh, a member of Generation X, not just uh, through the fate of being uh, born six weeks before the cutoff date, <laughs> uh, or sorry, six weeks after the cutoff date, so I just made it in. But I think that um, companies that have sustainability built into them, including their product development and sourcing, are giving us better food for our dollar because it means that every dollar we spend is being you know, used in a good way rather than those companies that choose to have a sustainable offer, but then go about business as usual. Right. Nothing unique to the food industry. Um, I also think that there is, um, you know, another challenge in the food industry, but not unique to the food industry, and that's legacy uh, business model. True in energy, true in transportation, true in just about any industry. You have a lot of companies that make most of their money selling you fatty food, salty food, bubbly sugar water, and it's really hard for any one of them to unilaterally disarm. Um, so in the food industry, I think what you get is a lack of innovation inside older companies. And so I think um, some of the newer companies that don't have those legacy models to defend in public or support uh, have much, much better product lines. It's also why the food industry is really rife with mergers and acquisitions, because it's often easier to... Um, buy a good idea than to try and build it inside a culture that's supporting something else and older. Mm -hmm. And um, some, some examples that of that would be what? Oh, um, I actually uh, got a chuckle out of, I think it was uh, today's or yesterday's Wall Street Journal, where um, Mutar Kent, who's the CEO of Coca-Cola, was being asked if um, they were going to be making any acquisitions to um, get... Uh, um, a greater variety of healthy tea products into the marketplace. Um, less caffeine, uh, more authentic product, less sugar, all sorts of good things. Mild health benefits with some teas. And um, he said acquisitions are a consideration. Um, he said they're going to try and expand one of the companies they bought Fuse recently. And then he mentioned, and we happen to own Honest Tea which they haven't uh, publicized so much, I think, because they mm -hmm. want to preserve the authenticity of that brand, a company they just bought a couple of years ago. But there's a, there's a way where a company that, you know, has a, a legacy of selling, you know, bubbly sugar water has said we need to diversify our product line and acquisition is the way we're going to go to get into whole healthy categories. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're letting their companies essentially run like they would normally. So in an honest tea bottle, for instance, it doesn't say, 
you know how you have the little logos it doesn't say pepsi i mean coca-cola on it they keep I that have totally to go different. look again but as of uh, last week at a uh, college and university dining food service uh, show the answer is no okay um, even though they were on display at the coca-cola booth okay Oh, I just found um, out. I mean, this isn't food, but I just found out that Tom's of Maine was bought out by Colgate Palmolive. I didn't know that. And there's certainly nothing on the, the Tom's of Maine logo, you know, the packaging that says that. So this is it's an interesting trend. Yeah, I think, you know, this is where someone with the, the right set of smartphone apps would find that out while they're shopping. And I think yeah. that puts great pressure and appropriate pressure on uh, companies to improve their legacy business. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to take us off on too big a tangent, but suffice it to say, there was a huge wave of mergers and acquisitions in the natural and organic food industry. And many of those brands that, you know, Gen Xers think of as independent are now owned in whole, in part, or at least controlling interest, or at least in part by, by larger consumer packaged good companies. Um, and I think it also has to do with the changing nature of the consumer. We've talked about um, millennials wanting the company to be great and willing to switch if they're not. Mm-hmm. We talked about Gen Xers and the lo- and 9-11 and local, and we talked about baby boomers willing to uh, buy uh, premium or luxury products to either make themselves healthy or to be their charitable act and express their values. These are all kind of twists and turns in the road, and a lot of the organic brands that um, millennials and baby boomers grew up with thought that a couple of those, t- those twists were trends of incredibly uh, rapid sales growth. They over-leveraged and they needed to get bailed out and ended up giving up controlling interest. And we can name all sorts of companies that that happened to Hmm. around the time of the Alar scare about 20 years ago. Okay. Just like any other company that says, wow, half the cars in America are going to be electric in a year. I better borrow all the money I can to buy as many batteries as I can. And oops, that didn't happen. Right. (laughs) Right. Either go out or we get bailed out. Get bailed right. out. Stop controlling interest in your company. Wow. All right. So we have about five more minutes. Let's talk about company. Um, let's talk about the transparency issue and long-term thinking of companies as well as engagement. I know you've done a lot of work around this. What, what are we seeing? Well, I think um, the food industry is really uh, a poor performer in this area and it's starting to feel the pain. If you think about transparency doing a lot of things, including helping your customers trust you and also helping you as a company avoid social risk, we don't want to accidentally buy food picked by slave labor or child labor in areas with weak rule of law. We don't want to be dependent on sourcing from a part of the world where we know that drought is much more likely as climate changes, you know, all sorts of things that come from that. That comes up against a culture in the food industry where there's lots of little horizontal layers. Food changes hands many times, and the culture is don't ask me where this stuff comes from. My value is being able to get it for you, you know, get you the ingredient, the tomato, the tuna, the caviar, whatever. Uh, Don't ask me who my business partners are. Mm -hmm. Um, Those two things are just an incredible conflict. I think it's a major driver. Uh, of why, uh, according to a KPMG study that came out, I think, last month, the food industry, among 11 sectors, is the one that has shown the least level of environmental improvement, the one that uh, has the highest cost associated with environmental services. I think extra 
extra premiums because you're sourcing from an area that has a drought, and now you either have to pay more or buy on the spot market in the moment to, to substitute in when everyone knows there's a drought and a shortage and the price is as high as it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also why you're seeing um, a lot of um, companies um, being unclear about which way to go and grasping at certifications which have a place in driving improvement, but are also saying, we understand you don't trust our brand anymore, trust this other logo, and we're willing to pay 1% to 4% of our margin in a relatively low-margin business in, in order mm. to do that. So you see a lot of companies that have declining margins that are spending down their brand value and tr- looking for ways to be trusted. And then you also see companies um, doing uh, things that everyone thinks of as silly or inappropriate, like saying, uh, don't just blame soda uh, for obesity because you eat other things. Uh, right. Or it's no proof that um, beef is bad for your health because there's still three studies or four studies that say it's unclear despite the thousands that say that it is. <laughs> um, don't want to say everyone on your show should go vegetarian or vegan, but outside of the U.S., beef has a, a two or three ounce uh, per serving roll on the plate, not an you know, eight to 48 ounce serving on the plate. Right, so, right. Uh, right. Our portion control in the U.S. is quite astounding. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you could go there and say, I don't want to, get, again, get us too far off, but, you know, a lot of companies are competing on portion size because they, they're not competing on these other authenticity, transparency, or even flavor and culinary delight. Mm-hmm. About, about the, the size, I think I saw something that you, you were talking about where people are actually paying more for less. Yeah, is I that- mean, this, this, is, this is, again, you're not, not unique to food, but I think anyone who's gone into fine dining knows that you pay for the craft, the inventiveness, the delight. Um, right. People are paying for smaller packages because you're paying for someone else to hold the steering wheel and steer you to a healthier and more nutritious diet. And uh, when you're competing on portion size, I, I grew up in Michigan uh, for a good part of my life. You know, went to college or lived there for 22 years. You were there a while, too, and you know the joke. The food wasn't very good, but at least the portions were large. And, you know, <laughs> but when you're competing in that space, all you're doing is saying, how cheap can I make my product? Yep. And you're not thinking about how do I go against the tide of overconsumption. Right. We talked about half the food being wasted in the, in, in the less industrialized world. In the developed world, especially in the U.S., we throw away a third to half of our food, and that's because we can only eat so much. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what do you have? What, one more question. We've got about a minute and a half here. What are you doing now with your work? What, what, do you have anything that you can tell our listeners, that sort of exciting projects that you're working on? Well, I think the work with the Culinary Institute of America, which is the largest college and largest trainer of graduating and also professional training for culinary professionals in the U.S., is the most exciting work. Mm-hmm. These people, tens of thousands of professionals, are making the decisions about what we eat, making decisions about our health, and making decisions about our relationship and impact on the planet every day. And I'm really privileged to have been asked in to uh, launch that program for both uh, business and continuing training for culinary professionals and also inform the curricula for the several thousand uh, culinary professionals who will graduate each day. It's a pretty big enterprise that will involve some of the larger restaurant service companies and uh, food retailers in the country as well as the Harvard School of Public Health and uh, Mm -hmm. 
representatives from Harvard Business School. And, uh, you know, I'll do my shameless plug, and I'm also, you know, continuing to uh, advise restaurants that want to pursue a healthier and more sustainable path, uh, restaurant groups on how to uh, find opportunities at this intersection of cultural trends, health, and environmental concerns, both to serve healthier food and also to help avoid some of the risks that are coming with the changing climate and, and yep. a more connected consumer base. Terrific. Wow. This has been really fun, Arlen. I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity, Chris. It's been a great time chatting with you this morning as well. Well, we will talk soon and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for the time. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com.